Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And I hope you enjoy this new show, whether you're viewing it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the episode. I do want to thank you for being part of my audience. You can also find links to videos or podcasts on MiamiGhostChronicles.com as well as where you can submit your story about any eerie experiences you've had, which I would love to hear about. Just go to the Submit Your Story tab. Please subscribe to our channel so that you receive notification of when we release a new show. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is where I usually live stream and where I give you a behind-the-scenes look at locations where new episodes are being filmed at, I also tell you about all the interesting guests that will be appearing soon on Stories of the Supernatural. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, Stories of the Supernatural. How's everybody doing today? Good, I hope. I'm doing excellent of course and you know what that means that's because I have a guest that I am excited super excited to have on the show and to talk to and uh, this gentleman his name is Robbie Thomas now Robbie is a psychic medium criminal profiler okay and he now first of all he helps families and police uh, fight against crime as far as bringing solace to those who need it um, as you know, a lot of times when it becomes to, to crimes, you know, families, either because they don't know what's happened maybe to a loved one, or unfortunately, once they do know, sometimes, obviously, there's a lot of um, heartache involved with that. But anyway, now over many years of assisting in, mur- in any murder missing persons cases, uh, he's been able to give a great details to these devastating crimes or their happenings. He lives in Canada, and he is also a prolific, best-selling author in the metaphysical, spiritual, horror, paranormal genre. And also, he's been featured on several television and radio shows. So, it is my pleasure to have him on the show today. And how are you doing today, Robbie? I'm fantastic. It's good to be here. No, thank you so, so much. And um, I mean, I was like, where do I start? But let's start with what I ask all my all my guests, which is obviously now because of you know of what you do obviously you're involved in the paranormal as a psychic etc but how did that happen for you Robbie was it something as a child or later on as an adult yeah no um you know in many different television programs I've discussed this and radio programs as well as an early child at age two and three I used to go around saying either I'm adopted or I have a sister out there some there's part of me missing here mom and she would say, Dad, he's doing it again. So my father would say, you know, get in here, leave your mother alone. Well, in the early 60s, if you had a child out of wedlock, the Roman Catholic Church would take the baby and give it up for adoption. This oh. gentleman promised my mother the world. Uh, you know, evidently, he didn't marry her, and, and she got pregnant, and she had a child out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. The church, church stepped in in the early 60s, took the child away. My mother went through heartache until she met my father, married him, and then they had me. So here you go. You have this little kid running around saying, you know, there's somebody out there. There's part of me. I'm missing. There's something amiss here. 
Now I'll take everybody fast forward to 1994. Uh-huh. After my mother's after my mother's funeral, my mother's side of the family pulled me aside. We went to the park, sat down at the bench, and it was her brother and her sister, and they were talking about how right I was as a oh child. Oh my God! I cannot believe you. I can imagine you as a child. I wonder what your parents. They must have looked at each other and been thinking, "How does he know?" Yeah, there's a lot of things. There's a lot. Of <laughs> I bet, right? Answers. That's only one of yeah. them. Yeah. But obviously, your family yeah. knew how to keep a secret really well because I guess what they honored your mom's wishes until she passed away. Is that what they did, or? Absolutely. They, nobody knew a thing. And um, once they pulled me aside, they said, "You know, she's been looking for you. Her name's Mary." They, um, I met her. She was a spit-in image of my mother. And Fox did a special. They did a reunification special. So we tied it all back and it's documented. Yeah. That is incredible. That is incredible. And yeah, and and a lot of people, and when you bring that up, Robbie, people don't realize, like you said, back in the 50s and the 60s, 40s, all this time, having a child out of wedlock, it's not like now that it doesn't carry any type of stigma. Back then... It really did where um, sometimes that's that's a lot of girls would just find themselves in that predicament and then do exactly what you talked about, especially uh, uh, if you're saying, you know, she was Catholic and, you know, they stepped in and they did that. And I'm sure they probably assured her this was the best choice she could make. But, wow. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that is I an know. incredible been... story to start with. It was a horrendous moment for her. I know that for sure. I know. I know. Sometimes it's, you know, um, uh, that's a difficult choice to make, whatever the case. But considering everything, uh, I'm glad to hear, though, as far as things, because I'm sure that there's people out there that never get to be reunited with siblings siblings, or even know that they exist. So in a way that was a a, a good ending. Uh, So here you are. (laughs) I'm just thinking. We can't keep secrets from him. Your parents must have been like, oh, boy. Uh, so what happened? Mm-hmm. And as you were growing up, uh, because, you know, I've heard of people like yourself that ever very young, very young children, they're, they're demonstrating psychic abilities or precognition. Others, it hits them when they go into adolescence, like when they're prepubescent. And, of course, there's the adults. Um, what happened with you? Did you keep on having... I guess, because I imagine that when you were saying this, you had no idea of validating or what you were talking about. As you were growing older, did you have any type of experiences where you were realizing, okay, I'm the only one that's either hearing or seeing this or being aware of this? Yeah, my first book is in 2003. And when I brought that forward, that body of work, I explained in there how my peer section, if they knew listen, what I was going through, oh. I'd be crushed because everybody would say, look at that freak, look what's mm-hmm. going on. You know, so you keep it quiet and you just go on your everyday life. And, and, you know, like in the book, I write about a story about my father bought the home. I was going to attend a high school, St. Patrick's high school. I was okay. age 12, 13. And we finished that summer remodeling it. And then he lets me know that the gentleman in the home that he got the, the house from on an auction sort of type thing, he died in the home. And there was a fire. So we remodeled the whole house. And I'm in there going to bed. And I remember going to shut the light off. And the curtains were open. 
the illumination from the, the moon was coming in the window, and there he was. He was standing right there, and it was like a full-bodied apparition. Oh, God. I, I pulled the covers over my head and screamed because it, it shocked. You know, you're only 13 course, years of age. Of course. And so he, my mother came in, flicked on the light, and, of course, he's gone. Now, this transpired more and more over the summer. Got to know who he was, and then he started telling me things. Okay. The three gentlemen adjacent from our home across the road were his best friends. Okay. There was Mr. Leach, Mr. Waters, and Mr. Harding, and they were all going to die in a short period of time. Oh, my God. So I was, I was given this revelation, if you will. And so I remember Mr. Leach, very stout man, you know, very outspoken. And he, was, he became frail very quick. And I remember him walking across the street holding his pants to sit down on the porch to talk to my father. And I'm just looking at this man who was, he was a, a, a real live human being, full-bodied man down to bones. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Mr. Mr. Leach died of cancer wow. that summer. Mr. Harding died in a, as a, had a heart attack. And then Mr. Um, White, he, he died in a uh, hunting accident. So all three men were friends and, and then it all happened that summer so i'm looking at the revelation this individual this home that we're in now that was his house showing me what was going on so this all happened um, in the span of a summer of three three or four uh, months of a summer of Whoa. a summer where i was living absolutely summer and fall yeah wow didn't you feel kind of like the cassandra effect like do i really want to... i mean that's pretty heavy to know well, especially when a you're teenager. a teenager yeah. I mean, going through life, I mean, I used to talk about the angels when mm-hmm. I was a very young child, three and four, laying on the lawn. I remember my mother doing the laundry, hanging the clothes on the line. And I'm looking up in the sky and I would say to her, when are the angels coming back, mom? And she says, the angels with the wings? I said, no, the other angels, meaning aliens. And I'm talking about life on other planets. And you have this child who's three and four expressing himself about different dimensions and things like this. Okay. And, you know, I'm going on into the whole realm in different aspects. So as I get older and I write about this, you know, it, 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 it becomes a cumbersome thing for a teenager. Sure. When you, when you're living this oh, and then yeah. who do you tell, who do you speak to? Who you do know, you, you risk? Mother... What if you tell somebody who you think is open-minded and they all of a sudden they're like that, not as open-minded as you thought. Boy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, my, my very first one hour television special was in 2003 at 2004. And it went syndicated. So I remember speaking on that show, talking about angels, talking about life on the other side, and how it how it's conducive to what it is here, and you know how we as a as as a human species, trying to find what life is like on the other side. It's just a never another partition, if you will, mm-hmm. part of us on the other side. Right. And but unfortunately, there's a lot of fear around death um and sometimes i don't think it's sometimes even death for ourselves it's the 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 fear of when we lose somebody that we love as in it's very final a lot of people think so true you know that separation thing but yeah there 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 is a a lot of fear built around that but so here you go like it sounds like you're going through your teenage years and Nobody knows the real you in a way because, and I don't blame you. I, it's like that's a, that would have been a big risk to expose yourself in that way because 
once what if you told the wrong person it got out like in high school kids can be really really awful they can be very mean and um so what happened you you went on you imagine you went on to adulthood and uh at what point because and that's the thing because i've heard of some people that do have psychic abilities and they see things but especially like what you're talking about they kind of clamp down on it because they fear being ostracized or you know or this is going to come and bite me in the butt uh at what point did you decide that's it i'm i'm gonna be who i am and that's it (laughs) who cares yeah well you know looking back at you know what you say ostracized or segregation from Mm -hmm. the norm of society we we take that a lot of people take that for granted and when you speak about fear we fear of dying yeah what really truly faith value so now when we lose faith we really think oh we got to hang on to what we have because yeah. we don't know you know I, I used to teach for years and explain this and, and try to to drive it home but i think in the essence of everything we go through our emotions we're taught as we go we learn the values of life here and the values of life on the other side mm-hmm. as i grew up into my past adolescence into the as you say, you know, when did I break out? Mm-hmm. Age 17, I wanted to be a police officer. Okay. I went through, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Okay. I did the testing. I beat a lot of candidates out on that final testing here in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And they were taking three auxiliaries. I was one of them. I sat in the chief's office. I remember them coming, the chief coming up, big burly man, sitting in his chair. He, he congratulated the other two, and then he just peered his eyes on me. And he has a grin on his face. And he says, son, how old are you? And I said, I'm 17. You know, just just boasting. 17. No, <laughs> and I, you're like, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a cop now, right? And he goes, um, you know, I'm sorry, but you have to be 20 to be an auxiliary. <gasps> oh. And you, you did. how did you get in here and do the testing? I looked like I was 20. But when you fi- finally finish the, the finalization of the paperwork and you're filling it all out and you're giving all the information, they find out how old you are and stuff. So that's oh. what happened to me. I was hired and fired in a oh one day. Oh, my God. And what did oh, he tell yeah. you? Come oh, back yeah. in three years? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, don't stop. Continue on. So I did. And I got hired on again in a different town outside of Toronto, Canada. Okay. So here I am. I'm a cop now again, right? And um, I go home. I'm celebrating with my family, and I'm sitting in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, the testing final brass, the last interviews, and yeah, it's great. So now I've got to give away my dog. i got to, you know, put the house up. We have to move, you know, house to another city mile, hundreds of miles away. So I'm thinking, this is great. Um, I'm just, just steaming along, going great. And I hear this lady screaming, accident, accident. So then I go at the back door of my home, and I, I hop the fence, and there's a lady in a row of townhomes in the parking lot. And she's in a robe, and she's screaming, and she's pointing down, down the laneway. So I started running as fast as I could. I get down there, and the road's curving to the street now. And I got my mindset, accident, cars, people dead, something here. Right. And I'm running, and there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. It's a normal day. And then all of a sudden, this gentleman to my left, he goes, no, over here. And he's waving me. So I run over to the screen door, sliding screen door, and I walk in. And there's a lady to my left running around a kitchen table screaming. And there's a gentleman to my right holding a doorknob. And he goes, come here. So I went over to him. He opens the door. Now, I'm still trained on what that lady said in the parking lot. Right. Accident. I'm thinking blood and whatever. You know, that's the responder in oh. me. 
and I'm looking on the floor for any drops of blood at all. He opens the door, grabs my shoulder, shoves me in, shuts the door. And I'm still looking for blood, and I look up, and there's a man in this little, small, little bathroom. It was just one of those, you know, toilet and a sink type uh-huh. things. Very small, and he's looking right at me. And I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. So I go over, I look at him, he's got blue lips, he's kind of pale, gaunt. And I go over and I touch her vitals. I don't see anything. I go to start to do CPR. I'm getting ready to do this man on the floor and, and, and start to do CPR to revive him. And I hear, let me go. I stop for a moment. I already know that all of my childhood, I can hear, I can see, you know, everything's fine. But it didn't dawn on me that what I heard, and I'm thinking, no, this isn't right. So I'm going, I'm going back to do CPR. And I heard really loud, let me go. I stop and I go, oh, of course, right? He's telling me. So I back out of, of the bathroom and we went through the mayhem of everybody standing there. There was one person in that kitchen. There was 25 people. And it was, you could hear a pin drop. And, of course, um, a couple of days later, the autopsy of this gentleman, he had a massive coronary. His wall of his heart was torn. There was no way I'm going to be able to revive him anyways. So here I am thinking, look, I, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm a police officer. I know my path. I want to be a police officer so bad. But I'm going to do it on a grander scale. So I call up the, the precinct and I say, I quit. Oh. So here you have a <laughs> so here you have a guy who dying to be a police officer gets fired in one day and then gets fired again and then he goes I quit and they said no you can't quit we got and I said well yes I don't want to be a police officer no more um, I quit he goes well we're going to send down a captain a sergeant and a film crew and they did so from Chatham Police Force they sent down a film crew a, cha- a captain and the sergeant my living room and they want to know why you quit because you can't quit as a police officer and they're telling me they're making a working tool for EMTs, firefighters and police officers who quit under duress well I wasn't stressed I knew what was going on so we went through them all those questions and they got to the main question why do you quit Rob uh-huh. and I said well I, I heard him speak to me he told me let him go and I looked at everybody and they're staring at me looking like I'm a nut and I'm saying, you know, I, you know no, I actually did hear And they're like thinking, all right, we're going to let you go. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, your career's done. So it's, uh, you know, here I am. That's my first movie I'm in. I'm 20. And um, it's a working tool for, like I say, EMTs, firefighters, whatever. And they were looking for tears. They were looking for some guy who was stressed. And, uh-huh. you know, I just knew very poignantly what I wanted to do. So not too long after that, my very first case, 1990. And... I'm in the parking lot speaking to a friend of mine who is managing a complex. And I see this guy behind him, maybe about 30 yards off. And he's walking to the main entrance, and he had a black shroud around him. Right. Whenever I've seen people with black or dark colors around them, it means that they've done something bad, they're evil. And, that, and, I've, and I've learned that through life mm-hmm. because of so many scenarios I've been through with bad people. Okay. And I'm watching this guy. And he's walking, and Greg notices me not having eye contact with him anymore, but over his shoulder. He turns around and looks. He turns back to me and he goes, that's Jesse. Would you like to go and meet him? And I said, yeah. So now we've made it up into Jesse's apartment. I, don't, I, I can't recall how we all said hello and everything got up there, but we're in Jesse's apartment. So Greg's sitting adjacent on the couch in the living room. Jesse's sitting about two feet from me on, on the couch where I'm sitting with him. And his pregnant girlfriend is in this L-shaped cove dining room attached to the living room area. And she's got her eyes beaded on us. And my line of questioning, I'm a very straightforward guy. 
I don't, you know, I don't cut the bull. And I'm just talking to him. And I said, are you in trouble with the law? What do you do for a living? And this type of questioning. And I wrote this in, in my, in the one part of the book and I'm straightforward with this guy. And he goes, you want to know? He goes, stand up. So at this point now, I'm still trying to figure this gentleman out because of all the black around him and how right. bad I get the vibe from this guy. And so I, I stand up and he lifts my shirt up and he goes, are you effing hot? And I'm still not cluing in what oh, you know, I'm trying to figure out this guy. Wired. You're wired. Oh, my God. He was thinking yeah. what you were recording the conversation. Whoa. Right. So now he's checking my belt loops behind my back, my belt line, checking my back. He, then, and then after he's done, he pushes me down the chair and he goes, you really want to know how it was done? And I'm still going, what's this guy doing? And he goes, and he held his hand sideways like a gangster. And he goes, and we popped him like this and he was hopping like a rabbit. Man, he starts telling me what they were doing. They were ripping off a car, a car stereo across the way from the gas station where little Mark Campbell came from Quebec with his family. And he was working in the gas station, earned a little bit of cash going to the high school, 14-year-old mm-hmm. little boy. And they couldn't they, – his accomplice, Thomas, wanted to go and rip off the gas station. So they walked over there, and he said they pulled the gun out and started shooting them. And that's what happened in that. That's my first case. So then, as he's explaining all this to me, uh-huh. He's asking us to leave. Well, he didn't have to ask Greg too much because Greg was already in the hallway. He was freaking out, right? <laughs> I I'm, I'm standing, <laughs> right? Greg's probably thinking, what the frick is going on? And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, I'm still trying to get heads or tails. Why he's telling me this, and now it's all fitting together, and then he's telling me, get to the door. So I get to the door. He grabs my shoulder, pulls me into him, and goes, did I tell anybody? I'm going to kill you. And, I and said, I'm oh, thinking wow. to myself, you just like now you're you've got this information inside of me. I'm thinking this guy sooner or later is gonna come for you because he told you. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder why. So he did the, that. You know, it, it, and then he says we're gonna get off on a technicality alibi type thing, right? And he told me the whole scenario, even where they ran everything. So we get pushed out. I get pushed out the door. I now I'm down in Greg's apartment with his wife, and they're going at it. She's saying, "Why'd you go and talk to him?" and Greg's going at him. We're going back and forth. And I said, I'm going to talk to the cops. So I went out. I went down and talked to the police. And the detective says, look it. You have to go back and befriend him. And I said, why? He goes, we want you to wear a wire. Because <laughs> we're in court with him right now over this murder that he explained. And they explained the whole thing to me. And I said, are you kidding me? I am not going back there. He said he was going to effing kill me. And no way. He made me. There's no way I'm going back. So that's go 28 years ago and I always tell people who listen to this story on any show please do not put yourself in harm's way don't think that you're the next psychic sleuth because <laughs> you're going to end up getting yourself killed I can imagine your friend that lived there because it sounds like it's like where do you go you got this person that that's like it's almost like you know, that ignorance is bliss I hate to say it, but in a way yeah. ignorance is bliss because once you know, maybe that day he felt like Chatty Cathy and imparting this information, but the next day he could wake up and think, hey, you know what? That's That person could turn on me, and I need to get rid of that person. <laughs> That's a scary Absolutely. thought. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And then, you know, and then the little attachment to this story was his partner, Thomas, which I explained, he murdered again. He <laughs> held his girlfriend down, and he saran-wrapped her head. Oh, and my he held God. And and he watched her take her last breath, and then now he's in jail for life. And then this, a.k.a. Jesse, is out west in Canada, and he got off on that alibi. 
They didn't convict him? No, nope, they got off on that alibi because everybody said they were with uh, family oh and God. they were in another part, another city. Oh, yeah, it's very, it's unbelievable what took place during that uh, that trial. That is incredible. But you know what? Sometimes people like that, they scare other people into providing alibis for them. I hate to say it, but, you know, yeah. who knows? Maybe he was a holder of secrets. He's like, hey, if, if I go down, guess what I'm going to talk about? I'm going to say this, this, and that. So you better say that I was, you know, that's just me <laughs> yeah. going down a storyline. But, yeah, I hate to say it, but difficult to get around a storyline. But I don't blame you because when he, that officer told you, hey, you need to go back in there. And get wired, and you're thinking this guy is. If I'm lucky, he's not gonna talk to me again. If he does, what am I? What, where am I gonna go if this guy realizes? Well, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'd be uh, buried six feet under someplace. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so this is um, and Robbie. So have you had those encounters with somebody, a victim, that's come back and is trying to? point the finger at some who either where they're at or who did something to them oh yeah i've had spirits show me where uh two days before someone went missing exactly where they were going to go missing really um in, in the book uh psychic profiler the real deal my new my new book that's mm-hmm. just out right i've got many cases in there from 28 years and okay. you'll see law enforcement testimonials to each case their reports letters from the families that dictate exactly how I solved these cases. Same with law enforcement. They tell you he solved this case. And not only that, there's never before seen information not privy to the public where I've had text messages, uh, emails, all put in there to show how the case broke down. I walk you through each case, showing mm-hmm. you detail by detail how a psychic profiler actually does work with law enforcement in the field and solve the cases. Now, we're talking about Victoria Stafford, little eight-year-old girl who went missing here mm-hmm. um, April um, a few years ago. And her anniversary just, just happened here. Okay. Um, so two days prior to this little beautiful angel going missing, I'm sitting in the living room with my wife and family, and it came in like a vision, like I'm watching TV. Everything blanks out, and it's just like I'm watching TV. I see exactly where her body she walks into the tree line the big pile of rocks the mm-hmm. laneway the wagon wheels the mennonite people and so i stop and i tell my wife this and then i start doing my drawings okay. and as i'm doing my drawings and all my sketches and all my all my writing my notes i decided you know over the years i've come very wise into showing proof that this is done prior to anything ever happening so i knew the program director of my local radio station. Okay. I went and I showed I went and showed him all this information. And you hear a bite, a sound bite of him on my website at RobbieThomas.net on the murder cases there. Mm-hmm. 99.9 the Fox. And he says, and I remember you showing me this, Rob, before they investigated anything. And he goes, and it all came true. He goes, I was a skeptic, but I'm a believer now. And he talks about about that. So in essence, I kind of put the footing down showing that, okay, I got the information, it's done. I get a hold of family. I go down, I sit in the office with Detective Brown. I'm in, in, in the police station. I'm giving information. I'm giving my drawings, everything to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the notes are all going back and forth. And if you read the story in the book about her going missing, 
Okay. You see, you see the email, like the grandma, and she says, "I, you know, the clues that you said, and the Mennonite people, and she's talking about, I can't wait for your book to come out." It explains everything. So it shows the proof that there are psychic medium criminal profilers that actually do work with law enforcement oh, who yes. do solve these cases. Yeah. Yes. Now let me ask you, and this is, I think, is fascinating. In other words, are you aware? that this person is dead or missing before the police actually starts the investigation or before the actual crime has been committed? Both. Um, wow. It's a very multifaceted thing that I have going on. Um, okay. That's the wrong terminology to say, but I mean, it's the only yeah. way it, it came to me right now. Um, here's another thing. I'm involved in a lot of cases at present, as you know, and okay. just this week alone, I think 30 came in my office. I get about hundreds and hundreds a year that come in the office. Okay. I'm in. I'm working a case in Kansas. I'm working one in LAPD. I'm actually working in with the Indian government government on ten sailors who are missing. So I'm I'm all over the place. Okay. Now, when I gave information on a case, um, I can't get particulars right now. Sure. Uh, but I'll, I'm going to give I'm going to give you certain much so people can understand what was okay. going on. They asked me. I see a photograph. I look at the photograph and I narrowed it down to a five minute radius. In that five minute radius, I said there's certain identification markers of land or whatever, or property mm -hmm. or such buildings that tie in perfect right to their name, where it's only two minutes to the uh, suspect's home, okay. to the their home they moved from, and to another accomplice home. Mentioned about a, a witness. Um, Things go awry. They arrest, they arrest this witness. Mm -hmm. This witness goes to jail. And the, what they wanted to do was get information from this individual. Okay. And not much, you know, of, of arresting him, but more or less get information from him. Exactly. They release him. They release him. There's a hit out on him. He was murdered that night. He was released two, oh. two nights ago. Oh, my God. So oh. now two nights ago, we're sitting here. We go, okay, they are on to us searching for the body and what have you this is how intricate it is um you should have stayed so in custody. That... <laughs> it's like i hate to say yeah. it but... <laughs> yeah 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 poor guy um you know and then i'm online i go on right on the death scenes with uh with detectives another case here we got the deathbed confession and this these stories are actually in the book or the ones mm -hmm. i'm talking about now are okay. in the book um Kentucky and is a double homicide. The one suspect, three suspects, suspect number one, really tough. And he's the, he's the guy we, we tried, but he wouldn't break. Okay. But in the end, he gave a deathbed confession and he confessed to another witness also. Um, so he committed suicide, you know, case closed, kind of. Okay. I went to the weakest link and I talked to law enforcement officer, Andy DeLay. And he goes, Rob, how can we do this? And I said, let's get the weakest link, get them to come on out and meet us, get me Bristol board, get me some uh, markers, and I'm going to profile him as a characteristic of his of himself. Then I'm going to do it what he did prior to the double homicide, during and after, all on Bristol board. And he goes, okay. So we started. I'm doing all this in the boardroom. I'm getting my stuff. I'm doing it for about half a day or more. We set up this meeting with Bobby. Bobby agrees. He's going to meet us at the end of the driveway. So it's great. So we go down there, and he's going – he's calling me Mr. FBI man. That's how he addresses me, right? 
and it's very sarcastic. And I got a very short fuse. I do. And, you know, and I'm looking at this little guy and he's calling me and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to hold my cool, bite my tongue. And then Andy's playing bad cop. I'm playing good cop. I've got the recorder under his chin. Andy's laying all these hard questions. And part of the sequence wasn't that I was supposed to ask questions, but Andy just turned around and he just goes, I had it. He goes, okay, Rob, ask him questions. I'm looking at Andy and I'm going, <laughs> what are you doing? I'm not supposed to be doing this. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, a turn of events, right? So I turn to look at this punk and I'm looking at him and I go, and then the terminology in the book is street terminology I use. So people get the raw language of how I truly am when okay. I'm talking to a murderer. And okay. that's the only way they understand. Sure. It's not like you and I can carry on a conversation. The adult have, you know, our linguistic and language is, is very nice, you know. Right. It's very raw. It's very raw with him. So I'm telling him, you know, do that poop. You know, that poop rolls downhill, right? And I'm going like this, and I go, you're that poop, right? And I'm just, you know, I'm just laying into this kid. And I said, I'm going to tell you something. I know you were there, and I know you took part in it, but you didn't do the exact act but I know you did, you were there. And he's shaking his head, yes. I'm thinking, kid, speak. And he's talking, and you know, he's, he's shaking his head. Now all of a sudden you get him to say, yes, yes. So I got the confession. Right. We go, we go down now to the sheriff's office. And now the second part of this case, that's gonna be in volume two, because this is really huge. Okay. And this is actually breaking news. It's gonna be breaking news. And you're probably about the second person knows about this part. Uh, the, the Kentucky newspaper okay. is going to print on how the cover-up in this was done by the sheriff's office. The old guard's out now. They're, they're not sheriff anymore. Oh. And I don't know how the guy became a sheriff because he was never did law enforcement studies at all. And so Officer Andy DeLay, in his letter, he tells you right in the book, the old guard's out, and he calls a spade a spade. And this gentleman's been a police officer for forever and a day. Okay. And so we're there, and I'm and I'm watch and I'm watching what's going on. We got the confession, and then I give it to the one detective. He walks in, comes back out about an hour and a bit later, and tells Bobby to go at the back door, and he hands me the tape. He goes, "It's blank." But, what? Yeah, but here's a kicker. Here's the kicker. There was a good cop, thank God, inside. He got all the interrogation videos. He just sent them to the family, and I just got them two days ago. Um, I, I watched one where Bobby is talking, and the detective goes, you know, you talk to that psychic and the, and, the, and, the, and that other police officer, and you said, you, and he goes, yes. And he goes, we got your confession. It's on tape. We got it. So he's already heard it, and he implemented himself, but yet now he comes out and tells me it's blank. So there's corruption. So now we're going to go – and we're turning it, and we're, the family wants closure, proper closure, but they're going after the correctness of what happened during the sheriff's department. Um, you're a good cop, bad cop. You know, I, we go after bad cops. We go after bad lawyers. We go after bad judges, anybody. Sure. You know, you get that, you get that in any profession. Teachers, Absolutely, doctors, sure. whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, this case is bigger and bigger all the time. Um, I still have another six interrogation videos to watch. Uh, I got the rundown from the family. I know the one is is the one witness where the main guy who committed suicide, he confessed to her, not once, twice, and she gave a deposition to the detective, which I have, 
which is also going to plow him in the road. And, you know, it just doesn't look good for the, for those old, the old guard. And how but, long um, ago then did, did this, this is, this has been, this happened then years ago, right? The crime? Well, yeah, this happened. Oh my goodness. I went down and did this case in 2012, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, yeah, sometimes I hate to say it, but yeah, when I, I've seen it on other crimes where there's either a change in either the, either the police, either the detectives that handle the case or the district attorney, you know, the one that makes a decision whether to, to prosecute. Sometimes when you change those people out, uh, some of these cold cases or cases that stagnate, they pick up steam because it was just the wrong set of eyes looking at it or making decisions. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yes, this absolutely. This has a twist in it, though. This has a twist where they know a guy's coming after them. Oh, sure. He put a book. He put a book out there, and in his words, say cover up. And then all of a sudden, one cop is there going, "This is making news now. It's going to hit the newspaper. It's going to go national. I don't want any part of it. Here, I'm going to give you all the videos, everything, and I'm going to be clean. I'm washing my hands of it, but you can go after the other guys. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's like the, yeah. the, the rats off the sinking ship. They're like, like exactly like what you described. Yeah, it's things like that. They unfortunately, there's thing. I'm sure that there's been crimes like that that have been committed that have never come to light, and then there's others. True. Now let me ask something, Robbie. Um, it sounds like you get contacted by police departments, you know, regarding certain cases. Has it ever worked backwards where you have the victim come to you in spirit form? Because you know, sometimes you know how they say uh, no victim, no crime, especially people that go missing sometimes. Depending yeah. on the circumstances, they'll put it as a homicide, but other times they just put it as a missing person, which, of course, yeah. doesn't get as much attention as a murder. Have you ever had uh, uh, somebody that maybe they kind of consider the missing, maybe murder, but it's more like a missing person, then they come to you and kind of like ask you for help? Yeah, well, Victoria Stafford, it was, you know, being shown her, she was still alive at the time, though. But her going into the into the the tree line, okay. that was more or less spirit guide showing me this. But then after, when when she did go murdered, get murdered, there was many parts in the story. I talk about how she's come to me, and at the end she came and gave me a flower, and there's butterflies, and it all signified everything that the family knew: the color of the flower, the butterflies, you know, at the end, and then and begin and, and near the um, when we got the one guy convicted, there was two of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she come and hugged me, and and then they wanted to know if she was around the family at the time, and and then and I told them about the stuffed fox head on the hat, you know, um, resembling the fox racing, which I never knew nothing about. Okay. And so, because I'm not a race car kind of guy, All I'm right. a hockey guy, you know. So, you know, just think things like that. But yeah, her going missing, before she went missing, I was showing. Um, there's other cases, yes, and but here's the key. And I tell this on every show. Okay. To be professional, to be professional, and I've done a lot of law enforcement shows where there's been lieutenants and, and they have radio shows and TV shows and what have right. you. You know, like law enforcement, they do not like you calling them up and saying, "Hey, I got, I got something that's gonna, you know, there's a missing person and right. you know, I got clues of that." They hate that. They do mm-hmm. because now they got to take a look at all what you've given them and they have to follow everything to a T if it's a tip and it could waste right. a lot of time. In my book, I write where a family, since 1996, were told by a so-called psychic that the husband and their son 
were um, was dead and buried behind a jail in Mexico. Don't bother looking for them, for him. And so they lived with that. And I did a psychic justice tour in 2010. Okay. So I started out my I started out my hometown. Uh-huh. I put my name on the line. I packed a theater, and it was full of police and people from my hometown. Okay. And I told the lady that her husband, who was missing, to do her homework. I said, you got to get a hold of the OPP, which is like state police in America, Mm -hmm. which in turn, they'll talk to the RCMP, which is like the FBI in America. So she followed what I said, did what I said, and I gave an area and a place in Canada that I knew he was alive. He isn't dead. He's alive. He was alive? (laughs) Watch this. So all these years, this family went through being told he's dead in Mexico, buried behind a jail. The story's in the book. So I look at, and I'm talking to her on stage. I said, did you do your homework? She said, yes. And I said, where did you find out? She says, it's a matter of privacy. And then I hear this voice in the audience go, and that's what they told us too. So the spotlight went from me on stage with this woman to a beautiful elderly lady, about eight, nine rows up. And I jump down with the microphone and I go to her and that's his mom. So the mom's in the audience, his wife is on stage. The mom did not know I was doing this case that day with his wife on stage, and they're both estranged from each other. They don't talk to each other. So this is like a a really uncanny moment. Oh, my God. And I'm sitting there. I go to her and I go, can you repeat what you just said? She said, yeah, it's a privacy issue. They told us that it's a privacy issue. Leave him alone. So I said, okay. So then I look at the mom on, or the wife on the stage. I said, you were told it's a, it's a, a matter of privacy and it's a privacy, privacy issue. So we got two things coming to me from two different entities of police telling two different people. I said, we found him. And where? And sure enough, it was British Columbia, Canada. And that's where he was. He wanted to be left alone. And I'll tell you something. There's a lot of people in this world that just walk out of relationships. Yes. I just walk away from their families and do not want to be found again. And people think they're missing. Right. They're dead. They're not. They walk away because they want to start anew and get away from everybody and anybody. Yes. And this gentleman did that. I, th- I know that one. people find that hard to believe, but yes, there's people out there like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. Which is sometimes, and, and which, you know, sometimes, you know, like, and I'm sure you've seen the shows, Robbie, where, Somebody goes missing and the family comes to the police and say, look, this is unusual. But the police say, no, you know, you know, if you're an adult, you're allowed to disappear. And, you know, the family kind of battles it out saying, no, that something happened to this person. But I know that police sometimes have more experience with sometimes there are people that do exactly what you described. They just. Yeah. More than people know. They want to cut off. And when, when I mean cut off, cut off all ties like, you know, and. What's better than just like, yeah, just pretend I'm dead. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's yeah, it's, true. It's difficult to believe it that has happened. And one of the things I want to ask you, like you, you made mention of this thing of this little girl, Victoria. Okay. That basically you had insight to what was going to happen to her. Does that mean that at some point these victims, that there's a predestination, like what's going to happen is going to happen because this is your destiny for this to happen absolutely yeah and okay and um, I talk about the inevitable right and and the reason why I ask that is that I know 
there's sometimes a lot of people, family members especially, of course, that when something happens to a loved one, they kind of torture themselves for years sometimes, always thinking if they had done this, if they hadn't done that, if, you know, they could drive themselves crazy with all the what ifs. Oh, absolutely. But part of it is from what you're describing is that there's something that this is the path this person was going to have no matter what. There was no way to to avoid it, for lack of a better word. That's yeah. true. Uh, and yeah, uh, yeah that's as, as horrible as it is, because let's face it, we all think that, you know, we're going to, you know, parents predeceased their children. And if in a perfect world, everybody dies of old age in their sleep. But that's just not the way it is. No, no. You know, when we discuss the inevitable and mm -hmm. I and I and I talk to families and the and I, you know, I, also, I often beat myself up, too. I relive all these cases, all these little babies and, and people. And I always say, what if I was 15 minutes faster? Or what if I would have been this way or that way? But then I, you know, my wife's my pillar. I take her on death scenes wherever we go. Okay. And because I need somebody to talk to when I'm out of town and, you know, to, to, to vent. And she goes on death scenes with me. Okay. So we're, you know, when I, when I discuss things like, ah, oh, you know, I really, really wish I had five minutes more back because I could have saved him. Mm -hmm. No, it's not that. You can't stop the inevitable. But right. in, in the opposite hand of that, when I get called from, uh, from Florida and I'm in Canada mm -hmm. and, the de and the detective goes, um, we have a missing endangered elderly woman. Right. And the bolo went out. Can you please help? And I said, sure. So I send me the file. So they send me a photograph and I'm looking at it. And within an hour, I find her in Tampa Bay and bring her home alive. Right. So then, you know, you look at that and you go, that's different than why didn't I save the boy? But no, you're right. That, that predestined road is their venture they have to follow. I'm in here for a reason. And, mm -hmm. you know, I look at all the cases I've done over the years right. and everything I've done. It's like not a benchmark, but what it has become is an institution in itself because there are a lot of people out there like me who are doing this and we carry on and help families for a reason. Sure. It may not be for the reason that we find your child, your child might end up passing, right? but we're there to under make you understand. Um, I've come to the point in my life where I've done this now for 28 years right. and you know, people say, are you going to retire? I said, well, how could God retire on people? Yeah. You know, I, I can't, you know, I, I, I never does that. So I'm not going to do that. You know, I'll continue on to whenever I'm supposed to stop or God says, okay, Rob, it's not you anymore. It's going to be John, you know, somebody else takes over. Right. But yeah, I, I, I used to beat myself up all the time too. And I look at the families, you know, um, but you, 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 you become their spiritual channel for them. And you try to explain to them what life is like on the other side. And they say, well, like Victoria, here's a good example. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, 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 they're dying inside. And they said, just tell us if you talk to her tonight, if she's around us. And so I went home. I'm, I'm fed up because I'm driving back and forth two hours, not at the scenario, but at, at these people I'm trying to get. I'm really upset at them who did this. And I just blurted out. I said, Victoria, make a noise. And sure enough, she knocked on the wall five times. Oh my! And my God. wife, my wife goes, "What is that?" And she pulled the cover over her head and, and, and slipped <laughs> over the bed over to someone <laughs> my side. 
right? And I'm sitting there and I'm going, that's Victoria. And I said, Victoria, show me around your dad. Show me something that, like today, that you know that he would know. And sure enough, she, I, it was like, again, watching TV. And I seen a stuffed fox head on top of a ball cap that a girl was wearing. So I'm drawing as fast as I can. And I get it all done. I don't see it anymore. I'm done. I put the paper down. Next morning, I get up. I call Rebecca. That's the aunt and the spokesman for the family. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is what you asked me. This is what I got. I said, she showed me a stuffed fox head on top of a ball cap that a girl was wearing. And then all of a sudden you hear <gasps> all people gasping. And I said, what? And she goes, she, she just bought him that hat yesterday. Wow. The fox racing. Yeah. So I said, there you go. She's around you. That's proof. Yeah. And that's, and one of the things that you, and I'm glad you mentioned this because sometimes people don't realize because everybody thinks sometimes that the police only bring in psychics on these cold cases, like when they've exhausted, you know, all other possibilities. And sometimes police also contact psychics at the very beginning. In other words, when they're yeah. searching, like, should I narrow my, am I in the right spot or do I yeah. need to open up where I'm looking at? Because, you know, in a lot of these, um, like you said, when you have an elderly person or whatever, you know, those first few hours are critical. Absolutely. Uh, like, like, am I looking too narrow or, or, you know, or, or am I in the right track or should I, am I, do I need to look elsewhere? And, uh, because let's face it as, as horrible as it is on a cold case, that person's dead. There's <laughs> at that point is like, yes, it does bring some type of knowledge to the family because maybe they just don't have a final answer, but that person maybe has passed away for years and years. But when it's at that very beginning, like you just described, when you're able to find an elderly person uh, and bring them back so that that family, God, anything could befall, you know, yeah. a person that age, if especially if they've got, you know, any type of dementia or anything like that, it's, it's critical. It's, it's it's a very difficult thing, so I understand totally. And uh, Robbie, let me ask you: in the case like this, because I know sometimes, um, do you have family members that sometimes they want to keep using you as the connector between exactly like what you, that description you just gave? Like, hey, you're the one that is like the 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 one that's gonna let me know how my daughter is, for example. Where you have to right. say, look. I can't do this, you know, like I helped, but now I've got to pull back because they want to keep using you to find out if she's okay or if she's around or whatever the case might be. Yeah, anything. Yeah, I'm a very open, straightforward, you know, cold, <laughs> I don't call myself cold. I'm a very direct guy. And I remember if we go back years ago, that was happening. And I used to tell my wife's family, you know, stop. I'm not going to do it. Leave me alone. Uh, pretty much that's how the tone I would take. So, no, they know. They just know. Don't bother them. And because I get it all day long. Mm-hmm. You know, before the show here, I think I had four or five cases come in alone. You know, alone. Okay. Um, you know, and it, it's just, it's every day it's that many. Can you help? But I'm still working, looking at, like I said, working other cases where other cases are coming in continuously. And so I have to stop. And, and look and treat everybody equal and have to say, okay, I know the person's missing. They just went missing, but I can't drop what I'm doing now for this family, for this cop, or for this detective over here because they're waiting for answers for me on the phone. I'm sorry. If I can get to you maybe 
a week from now or something, maybe, because here's a good scenario. The CIA agent's daughter went missing, and she asked me, can you help? I said, sure. It took me a whole year before I got to her case. Wow. That's how many people I have on a waiting list. So I can't just go ignore you and you and you because you're special. You just called right. me today. You know, I know my record speaks for itself, and I'm openly endorsed by every law enforcement you can think. It's on my website. It's all there. People see that, and they go, we can go to him right now. It becomes a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job for me. Right. So when another, another part of this, too, is I say I have a fee because – this is what I do. Of course. You know, I have to be able to, you know, do things too. I mean, I just, you know, and they go, oh my gosh, you charge and they get mad. And, you know, yeah, I've, I've gone down that scenario. Yeah. But, you know, when you look at it, my wife coined a phrase, and this is good for your listeners. Okay. My wife coined a phrase, and in the book, I quoted it. I think it just sums everything up. She goes, Rob, you go out and help perfect strangers. Yes. My life is dedicated to perfect strangers. Mm-hmm. So when I take my life two weeks at a time away from my family, my daughters, my wife, and I go and travel thousands of miles away for perfect strangers, I'm putting my life on the line, and it costs thousands of dollars to do this, by the way. I'm sure People don't it does. think, you know, they, they, you know, it does. You know, and you go through the scenario, and then I'm online. And I remember, here's another case. I'm online, the detective wanted to pace everything off, so we did. And I, every time I, I talk about perfect strangers, I remember this moment. We get down to this final area, and Andy is about 30 feet from me, and, I, and I'm sitting with the daughter, and I'm just talking to her, explaining what we're doing on this part of the case. And we're in like a little ditch area on a road, and there's a house through the tree line to my right. And Andy, all of a sudden, he's peering like a dog into the tree line and goes, I can pull my weapon faster than you can pull the trigger on that gun. And I'm looking, and me and this daughter are looking at him going, who are you talking to? And I turn and look, and I kid you not, there was a shotgun pointed right at me and the daughter. Oh. So, yeah, the person thought we were encroaching on their land. It turned out they had a methamphetamine lab in their I house. Was, you so took they, the words. I said, yeah. what were they doing that they were that they were like that? I mean, come on. Yep, yep, I know. So she could have sneezed, could have pulled the trigger. I wouldn't be here. You know, so, yeah, when people listen to me talk about it costs money, and then they turn around and go, oh, it's a gift. You have a gift. The gift doesn't pay my rent, doesn't sure. pay me, you know, feed my family. So when I put my life on the line and I'm traveling and I'm doing not two hours work, I'm doing hundreds of hours of work, and they hire. I'm on a case right now, and I got so many cases I could talk about. I'm on a case right now where the guy wanted to hire a private eye, 25 grand, 25 grand for a private eye. So you can understand the thousands of dollars it does take to do something. Sure. When these families go, I got no money. I say, well, I can't help you right. because I can't fly from here down there. There's a thousand. Right, exactly. Up. I just can't do it. It doesn't happen. And, and I'm not this being is, and you know what? It. People don't realize that there's a practical part as in what you do. You know, you're not saying love don't pay the rent. Well, it's like. That's right. And it's and and I know especially when it comes to psychic work, a lot of people like if you charge for it, they, they kind of like put like a mercenary slant on it, like oh you're doing this for money. Yeah. It's like yeah because yeah I have obligations towards my family and how how do I live? That's right. Uh, and yeah. let me ask you because something I think that sometimes people don't also take into consideration besides the practical aspect of money, you know, you know roof over your head kind of thing. 
that I imagine, and you tell me because I know everybody's different, where isn't there comes a point, especially like that you're getting hit where you have to, it could be physically draining for you as well. Like you have your health. Oh, yeah. You can't be on like on on all the 24-7. You get sick. Oh, it's true. It's true. You know, but I'm a workaholic and I start at like 7 in the morning and I got, I'm answering letters, going back and forth. By about 9 o'clock, I've got a few phone calls in. And then I, I'm looking at photographs, doing things, looking at case files. I take a break through the day. By about 8 o'clock at night, like here I'm doing a show with you. It's 8 o'clock at night. So, I mean, like 8 o'clock at night, I'm doing this. And I'm still continuing my work to get the word out. Maybe by 9 o'clock, I kind of settle down. I'm drained. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they call me and they say, okay, um, we've booked your flight. You're ready to go, not tomorrow, but the next day you're out of here. But i got to finish these other couple of things i got to do. But then I'm flying out of here to go somewhere else. Yeah, I'm tired. I'm drained. And you, you get bitchy. You get everything. Um, you know, I'm a, like I said, I'm a very straightforward guy. And we were sitting there. We were, oh, I went down to um, Washington for that CIA agent's uh, daughter. And the FBI found the car in Virginia. I went to DSA. And I get out of Ronald Reagan Airport. And I'm just tired because I just, you know, the whole scenario we just discussed is exactly what took place then too. And I'm just in the office. I get in, finally through the checks, the security, and he looks at me, shows me suspect A, suspect B, gives me a little bit of detail, and then he goes, here's a map of Virginia and Maryland. Find her. Oh. And I'm looking at him and go, I'm going, wow, I mean, I just come off the freaking plane. It was delayed. I'm tired. And this is thrown. Now, I'm not mad at him. I'm not mad at the family. I'm not. I'm mad at these two guys that just looked at the pictures that caused this problem. So then I go back to the. Um, they escort us back to the um, hotel. My wife's in there with me. She's looking at me. I'm irate, and I'm just looking at the map. And I circle a little road. I throw the map down. I open a beer up. I take a drink. I go. I'm done for the day. It's ten o'clock at night. I'm done. And she goes, "How can you be done? You got a lot of work to do." The area. And so the next morning, I meet up with Homer. And I give him the map in the DSA's office. He goes, get in the car. So me and my wife and him in the car and the CIA um, individuals in the car, we're driving around. And he's taking me off point because this is what they do. And I, and I know the whole scenario. And this is the first time I've ever worked with Homer. And he went way over this side of Maryland. And I said, nope. And I'm, I'm going along with it. He goes over this side of Maryland. I said, no. Nope. I said, Homer, stop. Stop the car. And so he stops the car. He, he goes, get out. So I get out. He leans against the car, crosses his arms, and he goes, I don't know how you do it. He goes, there's no way you could have known from Canada. All that information you sent me about that road and knowing, not knowing about her phone pinging off one tower here, one tower over there, and being right there on that road. He says, for years, I've been on that road. And he goes, I don't know how you did it. I said, it just came to me, Homer. And he goes, I'm a non-believer of spirit. He says, I'm an atheist, so I need to know how you do this. And I said, well, that's how it works, Homer. I said, this is what it's done. I said, I put it down. I said, how was I supposed to know it was that little road that went to Highway 4 that led only five minutes from the murderer's home to out to the other side of it where they went down and found the car in Virginia? I said, that's the road. And he goes, yeah. And we found the bag and stuff and a whole bunch of material and technicalities that can't get into the case boat. But that's the point. You know, it's go here, go there, frustration, work fast, get things done, do it. And people expect it, like, and then he turns to the family and goes, this is a great point. I'm, I'm glad, you know, certain officers picked this up after three days of working with me. He turns to the family and goes, how much would it cost to get your daughter back? How much would you spend? Wow. He goes, 50000 
25,000? How much? And then he turns to, to turns because it's law enforcement, and I did it kind of like a favor. He goes, this is Thanksgiving, and he's here on a holiday and only for a few hundred dollars, and you flew him up. How could you expect him? And he was on my side then. He's seen everything I was doing, and he turned and said that. So people, when you listen to stories like this, and, and I take my life and I give it to you, mm-hmm. and I'm out there helping families, and they think, oh, it should only be like you know 10 bucks to get here. It's not. It's not a bus ticket. It's thousands and thousands of dollars exactly. for real to take part to do this thing. Yes. And I, I imagine also, let me ask you, do you do any type of psychometry, you know, from your home for any, have, does anybody ever do that as far as sending you items or anything like that? Yeah. What I get is a photograph on my screen. So mm-hmm. like when Caesar Cannell went missing in Louisville, um, it was a day before Canada Day. And... They sent me a photograph. I'm sitting there, and I'm doing the channeling of his photograph, looking at him. Uh, through the whole m- melee, the whole process of an hour and half, let's say, and the break in between when I knew he was being murdered and I felt the pull away, everything. I got the murderer's name, I got where he lived, and I got where the body would be stashed. And if people went on or read the book, Psychic Profile of the Real Deal, all that's in that book, the diagrams, everything's in there. But you can go on RobbieThomas.net, too, and take a look at all the murder cases. Mm-hmm. Diagrams are there. And you, you can see, you know, that what, what truly transpires. And so psychometry, remote viewing, it's all done. I can do it from my home. But there's, there's some times where I really, really have to go on best scenes. Okay. Because I, they, said, they really need me, and I ain't getting it. I'm just not getting it here. Okay. So they take me in the death scenes and we get it and we go through that way. Okay. Because I've been showing uh, a slide with the covers of your books, including this last one. Um, and let me ask you, does it, the longer the crime was committed, does that make it more difficult or does it does not matter? In other words, that, that thing of time for us is linear. Does that yeah. translate? No, there's in- no, no. Yeah, no, there's no. There's no, um, let's say, a break or anything in between. It's just like, it's just fresh. It's, just, it's fresh, it's right? Like it. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And yeah, because sometimes I know some families, I imagine, lose hope if it's a really, really cold, cold case. And uh, sometimes, haven't you ever come across, and I, I'm, maybe you have that, sometimes even the perpetrator has died. Um, that because sometimes years go by and I mean I imagine that for the family at some point and I don't know they, you just heard about the this uh, uh, this guy that was just captured in uh, over in California that yeah. that uh, the original uh, well he's he had a bunch of names because he was the East Side Strangler he was like he was a one man crime murder rapist and uh, yep. here he is 72 That's years cool. old yeah, ex-cop. Ex-cop, and I was looking at that, and I and the and that he's lived here there apparently. What it sounds like, I, I've all his life. In other words, he didn't he didn't like up and leave. He just was, I guess, very very confident that. Uh, I hate to say it, but it, uh, for lack of a better word, he committed the perfect crime because he did so many horrible things, and they kind of had a sketch of him. But if you look at those sketches, they're all, of course, in the seventies and eighties, which he does not sure. look anything like it now. No. And the, the reason they caught him was because of discarded DNA. And when they got that and they found it and they matched it up with him, 
they already knew a premise. They had a premise that they figured it was a cop because of the way that the crimes were committed, that only a cop would know these certain type of elements of how to break in. Right, because he was going into the some of the homes beforehand. Right. Uh-huh. Yep, absolutely. That's incredible. Yeah, I believe first, it was a 1978 double murder or something like that, I believe is what they were they charged him with, something like that along those lines. Even though he committed lots, God, he... Yeah. When you look at the numbers, and I know it took him a while to realize that they were looking at the same person for the different uh, crimes once they realized sure. that we, they were looking at the same person. But yeah, and, and um, I, I guess there's psychopaths out there because I can't believe anybody like that has got a conscience. But yeah, they're the ones that blab, like that guy that you described at the very beginning who tells somebody anybody you know what i did for some reason and then these are the ones that know how to like uh, just appear normal (laughs) for lack of a better word you know like that btk killer that other one that he was a code enforcement officer and you know how to place at church and pretended to be normal and he was everything but yeah no doubt it's like um paige bergfeld mother by day hooker by night NBC dubbed her that title, <laughs> and I remember them. I, me- I remember NBC calling me up saying, "We're going to fly you down to Grand Junction. Please show us where the body is. You know, we'll have great ratings, and we'll have a great show." And mm-hmm. I said, "I don't do it for the show, and I don't do it for the ratings." Right. So, uh, you know, I just thought to myself, you know, this is this is crazy. So I, I remember Sergeant Cliff Christ getting a hold of me, and he said, "Will you help out?" And I said, "Absolutely." And I told him what was going on with NBC. And I right. said, I'm not going to do that. We'll, we'll work with you. So here we go. Another scenario. I give all the information to him. And I told him, the guy works in an RV center. This is what I see. I see the fact that his name is Les, like Lester. Okay. And so sure enough, um, he dressed like a mechanic, him and another guy. And they were going to pretend to go apply for a job at the RV center. Sergeant Cliff Christ would talk to Lester and try to communicate with him while the other guy was trying to look for the instrument that I was talking about that killed Paige. And in doing so, the guy got a little heightened aware to what was going on and then tailed these guys in their car down the road. So I'm on the phone to, to them in the car and they're going, Rob, he's following us. And, and they're going high speed down the highway and they said, we're going to do a UE. So they did a UE and then he kept going. He went to the area where um, we talked about where the first dig was to where he moved the body. Okay. And I'm, they said the tire marks of snow. Okay. And then you see him get out his footprints, and they stop. And it looks like he was looking in the area of if it was disturbed at all or if anybody was there. But then he backtracked in his footprints and went back in the truck and took off. Are you kidding? So we knew Oh, my no, God. So, in no. other words, he wigged out. He was like, man, I need to check my crime scene. What? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, this case here is really cool for your listeners because Paige was pregnant. Oh, my and God. And in doing so, he killed Pappen. We call it a fetus. Mm-hmm. But the judge deemed it a double homicide and, and deemed the, the baby a baby, a human. Exactly. So, he was charged with double homicide. He's in jail December 27th. The second trial went down and because uh, the first time was a hung jury, which we were all upset about. But then finally, um, Sergeant called me up and goes, 
we did it. You know, he got, he got it. Uh, the judge made them go back and December 27th came around and the verdict is double homicide. So Lester Jones is in jail forever. Wow. That is incredible. Yeah. Let me ask you, have you ever come across cases where the, the police know of one victim and they contact you and, you know, what they think is one crime or one body or, and you say, well, but guess what? Do you know that this person has done or killed somebody else? Oh, yeah, a couple times. Um, yeah. And I the reason why I bring this up is I'm familiar, for example, like with the Doe Network and everything, you know, where they find these remains that sometimes they can't identify. And, it, and sometimes, depending on when they find them, they realize that this person was murdered. But without knowing either the yeah. identity of the person or who killed them, they're like, they're stumped. They're, they, they're just... They know the crime's been committed, but who the person was and who did it, they have no idea. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Tommy Van Tosi is a good friend of mine. He's in Boston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and he works for the network. Okay. So he said his brother-in-law, his daughter was murdered. Could I help? Okay. And Tommy's very straightforward. And I said, okay, Tommy, he's like, he's like me. I don't want any information. Just send me the photograph. All right. So he sends me a sketch. So I got a sketch now of the little girl, and I'm looking at it. And Tommy's on the phone, and I'm telling him certain things. And I said, okay, I'm going to finish this off. And he goes, Detective Morissette is waiting for it. He goes, here's the fax number. Send it to him and contact him too. I said, okay, fine. So I do all my stuff, my drawings and my notes. I call up Morissette, and he goes, and he's not a believer. And he goes to me, you know, look it. If anything like this here is a hit, he says, you'll know, I'll call you back. But he says, highly doubt it. I'll probably end up in the garbage. I said, okay, you know, whatever. You know, I wasted my time. You know, I'm, I, and I'm talking to a hard-nosed older cop. So I do my stuff. I okay. faxed it off to him. I'm waiting. Five minutes went by, nothing. I'm thinking, okay, you must have just thought this is crazy, right? All of a sudden, the phone rings. And it's him on the phone. He didn't say hello. I, <laughs> I said hello. He didn't say hello at all. He, he just goes, how the hell? And who the hell told you all this information? And did what did ta- ta- and I said didn't tell me anything. And he went on and on. He goes, it's impossible for you to know this and that and that what went on. And and how'd you know I got this guy in jail now on a different crime? And I said, oh yeah. And I said this is what it went down that way. So um, if Tommy's listening, I know we, we actually Tommy and I just went back and forth all night long last night on the Boston Toronto game. I'm a Toronto fan, and Boston. He of course he's a He's a Boston fan, and uh, my team lost, but we always rib each other all the time. You know what? It's, it's, um, and I, you know, not till a lot of people don't, are not aware of that, uh, because unfortunately, you know, only some cases get attention, as in either national news or local news about crimes or, you know, murders or body, but people don't realize sometimes how many human remains are sometimes found. If they're, you know, the, the different yeah. uh, stages of decomposition that they don't know who the person is, but they can sometimes, True. depending, they know that the person came. In other words, they didn't walk out into the field and drop dead. And I guess, I guess that's what I'm saying. And right. uh, even in some cases, sometimes they know the murderer, but the murderer doesn't even know the name of the victim, depending, of course, of the circumstances. But it's incredible how many people are out there that go missing and then they're found, and but they don't know who they are. And I think sometimes what yeah. I tell people, which is kind of sad, that uh, part of it is that they have nobody, no family member to ever call a police department and say, look, my daughter, my son, my niece, my whoever is missing. 
they've been gone for a month for whatever, and yeah. I haven't heard from them. They just so in other words, the police is never aware that this person uh, could be the remains that they found somewhere, sometimes locally or sometimes in another part of the country. But it's incredible, yeah, that there's a there's a, a lot of uh, crimes uh, that they never get either investigated or, or that the killer much less is brought to justice. That's why what you do is really important. I guess is my point of what I'm getting to (laughs) is that what you do is important because otherwise, you know, they're just the, it hangs over the family's head. Uh, And I know that a lot of uh, detectives, they, uh, you know, eventually their caseload gets to the point where they got to move on sometimes to other cases, but they never forget uh, or have that that wanting to resolve it to to find out what happened to the person or find out who killed them or so yeah it's not only for the families I think it's also for the police officers not all of them but some of them uh, that they get answers yeah yeah it um, you know I talked to a lot of the old guards the, the the guys have been around for thirty years plus on the police force and and you know, me too and it, it's it's difficult. Um, you know, and then you have the opposite side of what you just said. Mm-hmm. You have the false negative where people, and a lot of people don't realize this, but even in my hometown, here's a great example. This young girl has gone missing in the last four months, I think six times, and there's been missing persons reports put out by the police. Right. And then she's gone missing again, and she's found. Um, where do you draw the line? You know, and, and, and when I get asked, you know, can you help and I go ah uh, she's not dead there's no harm she, you know she'll a perfect, here's a perfect case oh my gosh there's so many you could talk about in my book because I want people to reference my book mm-hmm. in the book there's there's a there's another program where um, a producer went missing okay. and the Bolo missing persons report for Hamilton County Florida <clears throat> excuse me um, they issued it and they said again they had uh, a TV psychic from A&E this time say mm-hmm. that he was shot dead in a hotel, but they couldn't find the hotel, but they call me up live on radio and say, well, he did his part. Can you help us find the hotel? <laughs> and I said, um, he's not dead. He's alive. He'll call you in three days. He's really pissed off because of the fact of a promotion or something. And this is how it all went down. And, and you know, I, in other and, words, and, it was one then, of those guys that like didn't want to be found. One of the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, one of the people who wrote the um, the backstory to that story, it was an RCMP officer who worked for this program, and she wrote exactly, you know, detail that was right about what went on. Sure enough, three days later, in the letter that's in there from the email I put in the book to show everybody, they say, Robbie, you're an angel, and he did call, and he was upset. and So here you go. We got somebody who just runs away. And the missing person's report goes out. It's the opposite of, you know, trying to find somebody who's dead and can't find them. And, you know, but it's the opposite. But yet there's people who just wander away because they're mad or whatever, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people don't realize that some people really, really want to go off the grid, not just in the sense of, you know, what we think off the grid. They want to go off the grid as in family, friends, anybody that knows them or they, they're ready to do it. And once upon a time when we didn't have so much technology, you could do that easier. But nowadays, 
uh, you really got to cut all ties. And uh, I know yeah. sometimes the family members or friends have a hard time believing that this person would do this. And they they can't. Oh, they, they, they got Or they got a double life going on. And they... Um, now, and as far as the kids, I'll tell you, I'm not, I, it's something that I did in my previous work. I'm not going to go into that. But, um, you know, a lot of times, and this is, and, and, and I know that happens a lot, especially when you get some of these teenagers which are runaways and they leave and they come back. And then, but the thing is, um, by law, there are a lot of, at least here in Florida, you're supposed to call and report them missing. And when they come right. back, there's a police officer supposed to come back and lay eyes on them, eyeball them, and say, yeah, that person, that kid's back. And unfortunately, yep. the reason why they do that is because of because of what I said before. Because, let's face it, nine times out of ten, if you've got a teenager that's doing that, they're engaged in very risky behavior. Okay? Yeah. And it's for the one time that they do run away and something happens to them. That And, you know, it's working with police that the sooner you're aware that the crime's been committed – the better chances you got that you're going to catch up to either witnesses or the perpetrator or even the, the, the person. And I mean, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things, but once you're an adult, that's it. Hands off. That person can walk off into the sunset and say, Hey, I didn't want to say goodbye. And I don't want to see any of you ever again. Thanks. Um, yeah, that's true. That happens a lot, a lot. And, it does. and the first thing people want to think is, something happened to this person they got killed they and one thing i want now to i'm going to go off a little bit because you mentioned something of what you said to your mom when you were a child which was that you were talking about extraterrestrials referring to them as angels but as extraterrestrials right and i know that you know you're we're talking here a lot of the work that you do which is even though you do psychic profiling, at the same time, you're dealing with facts or crimes or things like this. Have you done any work as far as that is concerned? Yeah, I've been in different movies for, um, if you'd call it like the paranormal, mm-hmm. um, the different realms, like Dead Whisper Live. We come off the Natalie Holloway case in Aruba. We were to go down there. We had everything situated to go. And I was going to hunt down Vandersloot. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a backstory. I got a backstory for you on this on this story too, by the way. Okay. So um, that the authority said, please don't come right now. Everybody and their grandmother is here combing the island, and the economy's fall. So the film producers and the directors said, okay, fine. Uh, we're not going to go there. We're going to go to Chicago and film Dead Whisper. So we went down there and we went to Al Capone Speakeasy, Mantino State Asylum, and the Studebaker Mansion. And I've I've been the only one who've actually been in the Studebaker Mansion filmed for a um, paranormal program. They won't let anybody else back in there ever again. We uncovered things that I don't think they wanted the public to know. <laughs> you're, you're too good. All right. It's like, darn it. Yeah, he's he's for remember, real. Get him out of here. Curator. No, I remember the curator. He was really upset that we uncovered things that the Studebakers weren't really, you know, they were notorious for the car. and right. know, But they had a really weird, weird side to them. They had tunnels leading to the town. They didn't want to go outside. They wanted to do the tunnels and really weird things. Um, but, you know, looking at the things we did in 2005, um, and then, again, I did a movie in 2007, the, the Sally House movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like that. And then I did the return to El Capone with um, Liftoff Productions in 2011, I think it was. Okay. And then there's some other things, Paradox and stuff like that. So I've done the paranormal side of it. I worked with great people like 
Christopher O'Brien, you see him on Ancient Aliens mm-hmm. uh, on TV. He before he was in front of the camera, he was behind the camera filming me. So I okay. mean, uh, you know, I've worked, he's been around a while. He has, and uh, love the guy. Um, you know, just great people like that. Michael Esposito, who helped in the psyops in the American Army, was over in Iraq. He okay. was a double agent. He worked for the Israelis, Israelis intelligence plus the Americans, and you know, he did that where. They send out that signal to the Iraqis, and they thought there was like five million Americans coming, mm-hmm. but yet it was only like a twelve and five thousand Iraqis gave up. You're yeah, outgunned that's what he did. massively, kind of. <laughs> yeah, um, crazy things. He's a very, very astute professor because he, he he does have that title. Um, so yeah, I've done that that realm of things, and I enjoy it. And then just recently, we finished filming a new series called Coexistence. Uh, my partner, Keith Age from the Sci-Fi Channel, okay. last year, in 2017, we did eight different shoots throughout the Midwest of America. Okay. And um, we caught a lot of things on film that were crazy because it was a... It, he, he posed the show as this, the science versus the psychic. Okay. And I said, let's not do it that way because people are going to get... Not to like it because we're going to butt heads. I don't like that. Let's do it this way where we coexist. And he goes, that's great. I said, let's call the show Coexistence. Okay. So that's what we did. That sounds like He's a in a room. Idea. Oh, it was great. That is a fantastic premise. Oh, it was great. We, he's 15, 20 feet away from me, and the temperature dropped 30 degrees almost. I mean, it was like you could see your breath. He goes, it's here, isn't it, Rob? And I said, No. I said, and I turned sideways in my chair, and the filming is going, and they got snapshots going at the same time. And I take my thumb, and I go, it's right here. I get up. I walk around it. I walk on past about you know, 20 feet, and they're filming it. The thing was about 8 feet tall. It had a head so huge. It's, it was weird looking. We, we just couldn't make it out. Here's a great thing, too. Every stop we went, we allowed 30 people from the public to come in who wanted to see – it being done for real okay. and see things for, for real. Mm-hmm. So that was our validation for everybody. Okay. And uh, it was great. Great premise. What was um, it? What was that thing, that eight-feet thing? Oh, it was something. I'm telling you. It, uh, Keith goes, it looks like it's got a crown on its head. But it was really weird. The head was bigger than a basketball. It was really huge. Um, are we talking non-human here? Or what are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, something. Yeah, we're talking something not human. Um, what? Really weird. Yeah. Yeah. Oh totally my weird. God. Oh. Yeah. When is this going to be aired? <laughs> well, it's in post production. We just finished in November. Okay. Um, and the director is on to. I'm going down to the Mid South uh, convention in Louisville. That's Keith's convention. Okay. And the director is going to be there. Producers are going to be there. I'm going to be. I'm hoping they're going to unravel this and show people a teaser. And so, you know, catch everybody's eye. Um, it's amazing because we the Rhodes Hotel in Indiana. Okay. And I said, the, kids, the kid is running here right now. This is where the kid is. He's playing here right now. Um, everybody's sitting there going, yeah, you know, different reeds are coming on their instrumentations and everything. About 20 minutes later, we're 30 feet down the hallway in this bordello. Keith's down there. Everything's going off the hook down there. And we, had a, we have this um, DNA, or sorry, this um, non-disclosure. Mm-hmm. For people uh, to, that you can't use the film footage. It's all ours. Whatever you capture right. is ours. We'll give you credit on the film. Well, one guy didn't get the memo. 
and he had live Facebook going. And he turns he turns his camera towards the stairwell where I said that kid was, and he caught it. And it was live on Facebook. And you hear the kid go, F you, because you could see him in the camera. And it was on Facebook. So we didn't know about this till the next day, but yet it already had hundreds of views. I bet. And so, we, yeah, we had to take it down. And um, those who got a glimpse of it, they were lucky to see that. That's the, 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 the eight-foot thing. No, that was a different shot. Different okay, shoot. I'm sorry. So whatever, but whatever, what, whatever it is, the entity, whatever it is that, in other words, they were. Oh my God, that. Let me tell you something. Yeah. That must. That's that's a great idea. Because. Yeah. Yes, that is an excellent idea, and that uh, because that thing of bringing in, like you said, you know, regular people, that you bring them yeah. into it. And you give them well, a chance see, to have that first-hand experience. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Um, one cameraman, if you can picture going up the stairs, when you get pushed, usually you go forward and fall down a bit. Mm-hmm. This was weird. I said, the, the guy's up there. And I said, I could see him. And there was somebody hung up in the attic. I said, he's up there. But then all of a sudden, the cameraman gets pancaked onto the stairwell straight down like pancaked that guy turned white he didn't come back till i think it was like three different shoots later he was so terrified yeah wow yeah sometimes i've heard that camera people that are just there like doing their job they have certain experiences that they totally wig out you know they're not i don't want to say they're disbelievers but they're like i'm just i'm just doing a job here they yeah. get uh, yeah. they have an experience firsthand. Oh, I'm looking forward to to seeing that because uh, and and absolutely it's that that coexistence aspect, which is one doesn't have to exclude the other. Uh, the sure. psychic part does not have to exclude science or vice versa. Which is personally and we for, prove each other. Yeah, exactly. And well, yeah. I, I think that for example, that show Ancient Aliens. I think that's one of the things that it's appealing about it is because yes you've got all these people talking about part partially it's fact or discoveries and interpretation then of what they've come across but it's grounded in some type of either discovery or fact but sure. definitively you can't say for sure but uh i think that's a fantastic idea well anyway robbie thank you so so much for sharing this time you have been fantastic it's been wonderful and um I know that your work is really important and I'm, I'm glad, you know, it's like, even though you've done it for so many years, there's, you know, sometimes people don't answer the call when they have these abilities, they shy away from them, they become afraid of them, uh, or they don't want the responsibility of sometimes having knowledge of really unpleasant and disagreeable things, which is the murder of another human being. So uh, obviously, like what you said, that story that you said at the beginning about not once but twice you uh you basically changed the course mm-hmm. of your life you know it did it did and it takes that takes a lot of guts so there's a lot of people out there that would have said nah i'm gonna stick to the the regular stuff like being a cop and you didn't so thank you so much and uh, good luck to you and all your projects and of course you've uh i'm gonna have a link to your website here in the credits of the show and if not uh then can I imagine what can people find your your book there on your website or is it on Amazon or where can they get a hold of this book? 
Yeah, you can go on Amazon, go on my website. There's a there's actually a page on my website about oh. the book, and okay. you can read about all the critics, what the critics say, and actually some families, you know, they say, you brought my daughter home alive. There's certain things there that people can read. That's great. That is fantastic. Again, so thank you so much, Robbie. And I know that your time is precious for you, not not because of cases, but for yourself, for for your family. Hmm. So again, thank you so True. much for taking time out and doing no, the interview. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed myself. Likewise. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh my God, guys. No. I hope you guys are happy with this interview because I loved it. <laughs> You're like Marlene, you always love all the interviews. No, I do. I you know what? Because you know what? I'm going to say 99.9% of the guys that I bring on, there's something, because that's why I asked to interview them, they have something about what they do or what they've written about that's, um, that not only has it to do with the paranormal, but um, I like people to come and talk about their experiences or their books or what's, you know, uh, there's some aspect about it that I think is fascinating. And of course, I'm sure that if you're, either looking at the show or listening to it, you uh, are also have some interest in the paranormal. And again, this is what I mean. To me, the paranormal is not like what a lot of people think of as just ghosts. The paranormal is a very wide range. Uh, personally, my interpretation of the paranormal, the preternatural, the supernatural, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's ghost spirits. Uh, it's aliens. It's extraterrestrials. It's, uh, you know... Um, some people want to call it fringe science, uh, interdimensional uh, traveling, uh, a lot of the things that are just not part of the norm. Maybe once upon a time, or eventually they will be part of the norm, but they're not right now. Um, I think all of that falls into being called the paranormal. And uh, what Robbie said, I think, was... Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, also a lot of what Hollywood portrays as far as uh, if you're psychic and uh, they look at maybe, you know, like they had that, uh, the show Medium and that other one, uh, Ghost Whisper. And, you know, there's been some shows that will bring in uh, psychic. And uh, let me tell you something. Number one police departments use psychics a lot more than they will admit to it a lot more okay and like i said sometimes in the case of a very established and well-known uh psychic like robbie they can directly contact him sometimes when they're short on time or you've got a really really super careful police department they reach out via one other person to a local psychic that they know of. Number one being this person will keep it under wraps. The point I'm trying to make is there's a lot of psychics working out there that have worked with the police on and off, but you never hear about it because the police keep working with this psychic on and off because they don't talk about the, that they've lent assistance to the police department. 
some psychics they want it that way they're like hey you know what i don't want the notoriety i don't want the spotlight i don't want anybody to know about this yes there's people like that and there's others that think you know what if if i say something about it or i bring notice that i was involved in solving or pointing them in the right direction that's going to be the end of my relationship with this police department and if they feel that they're being able to help the police and and or the family whatever the the the, the case might be i'm going to then shut that door because think about it not all police departments or whoever is making the decision whether it's a sergeant or a lieutenant or a captain whoever whoever is out there making that call uh wants to be outshone by a psychic and like i said there's two types of that i know of that that you're going to get either one right at the very beginning when something happens and they know that time is of the essence and it's critical and they need to know Am I looking in the right place or do I look have to look elsewhere? Am I looking here and I need to look out here? Like, in other words, open up my range of where I'm looking at? Or, or should I shrink it down? Am I looking in the right place? This is usually at the very beginning of what could be turned into a crime. Okay, nine times out of ten, it has to do either with a kidnapping and or possible murder or something like that. So they know, and let's face it, they, and then of course, you know, you know the cold cases or when things like that. But anyway, a lot of police departments don't want to say, hey, you know what? We were so, um, we, we needed the help of a psychic. <laughs> they don't, they don't want to, they don't, because they feel like, okay, number one, we're going to get either colleagues that laugh at us or the public might lose confidence in us because Let's face it, folks, there's people out there that are fake psychics or, um, you know, they, they, they just don't want to be, they don't want to be said, hey, oh, you guys are so good, what, you need a psychic to help you? A lot of police departments don't want to deal with that. So you have psychics that, for lack of a better word, help out on the down low. And the only way that they're going to keep helping on and off is if they keep it to themselves. And that's like like an un, unwritten agreement that they do with whoever the go-between is between them and the police department that, hey, you're never going to talk about this. And, you know, like uh, that Mission Impossible, I it, this will self-destruct, I will deny all knowledge, whatever. Uh, then there's others, you know. In other words, what I'm saying is not all psychics, and I say this for people, there's people like Robbie that, you know, they've, they've proven themselves and they work closely with certain police departments who absolutely know and believe in what they're doing and they come to him uh in other words they're not out there trying to test him like oh you need to prove to me they already know that he is the real thing okay and there's a lot of other psychics out there that do this on a lower level depending of course where they're at what's involved etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but at the end of everything my point was it does drain you Okay, number one, when you have that ability, even though it, 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 it takes something out of you physically, number one. Number two, uh, if you're exposed to something really ugly, unless you're like a little, most human beings, it's, it's very great. It's, 
it does something to you to be involved or witness or understand what another human being being can do to another. Because let me tell you something, for all the movies that you could see out there, no matter, especially now how realistic they look when it comes to people getting killed or another person killing another person, etc., etc., and especially like all these slasher films, at the end of the day, let's face it, you're sitting in that theater and you're thinking, this is all make-believe. You could jump in your chair, but you get up and you leave because it's a movie. But when you do this type of work and you know this is not a movie, this is not make-believe, or dramatization, this is for real, this is what another human being did to another person, it does something to you if you're a normal human being. Even even if you want to come, even if you, what's the word I'm looking for? Car, put yourself aside, like take the caring part of you out of the equation so that you can help. You can't undo that memory or the knowledge that you're privy to. Okay. And I guess my point is having that ability and seeing certain things is not as glamorous sometimes uh, especially when you become aware of certain things, because what, you know, what's, what is it that they say? Once you can't undo the knowledge. And, uh, even though, and I've said it before, I'm a humanist. I believe in humans. I believe that we'll triumph and I believe in the goodness of human beings, but I am not blind to the fact that there's a lot of them out there, God, that are psychopaths, sociopaths, sadists, and, uh, their aim in life is to not only take other human lives, but make them suffer. Point in case, this guy that just that we talked about, probably by the time the show airs, uh, the news will have passed. Okay, about the uh, East Side Strangler, the original Night Stalker. That now he's 72 years old, and this guy was a one-man crime wave of rapes. And, well, he's robberies and murders, and I mean, horrible, horrible stuff. Okay, and finally he got caught, and like he was saying, uh, that yeah, that there's people like that, and you know what? Not all of them get caught. A lot of them. Look at this guy, 72 years old, ex-police officer. If you think all of them are caught, no, not all of them get caught. Some of them have that double life and grow old and nobody's ever the wiser because they know how to keep their mouth shut everybody likes to think of these pe- these horrible people that kill the people as being misfits and eventually they go to jail yeah sometimes that applies but you'd be surprised there's a lot of them out there that they're very cold-blooded they're very calculating and they're very intelligent and not only do they get away for years they get away forever and i'm glad to see that this guy got caught you know, I hope that whatever he's got left of life, which is a, at least a lot. That's one guy that you wish that he has a long life so he can spend it in jail. But anyway, let me get off my soapbox. So guys, I hope you like this show. Please subscribe so you can get any type of notifications when I release a new show. My true believers, I want to hear your stories, whatever they might be. Go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com and go to submit your story tab i live stream on facebook and on periscope even though lately i have been so busy it's been really difficult to live stream i know it um but again i'm going to try to get back into the swing of that and uh i've got a lot of fantastic guests coming on a lot i know you guys are going to love it super interesting people um 
all the and then oh it just by the way I forget that show that he talked about I can't wait to see it I think that is so interesting what a great premise for a new show about the paranormal I'm ready I am ready for a new show about the paranormal because believe me I've seen them all the good the bad and the ugly and I'm ready for some good stuff so again guys take care and again I want to thank you so very very much for being part of my audience and coming back all the time every week and uh, listening either on podcast version or on uh, on YouTube and by the way if you go to miamigoschronicles.com on my first page I have links to all the different platforms where you can download the podcast from or you can actually even download the actual mp3 file directly from miamighostchronicles.com just go to stories of the supernatural for whatever season it is that you're looking for and you was once the show is released i put uh, a file there where you can actually download it or like i said or if not there's a link there for whatever podcast platform you you know you use whether it's itunes speaker iHeartRadio, stitcher uh spotify i have a link there and that'll take you over there directly and you can download any of the shows that you would like to so guys take care what's today what is today oh today's thursday friday's coming up tomorrow yay weekend take care guys bye-bye